Lord, thank you for the way you bless us through this church, Lord, the way that you help us to encourage one another and to love one another, Lord, to love you more. We're so blessed. We're so blessed. And we want to acknowledge that today as we begin to open your word again. Look at the life of Naomi and Ruth and see how you so abundantly provide, Lord God. Bless our time together as we, as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there comes a point in every person's life where they need to make decisions. They need to decide if God truly exists. And if we're sinners, how do we be reconciled? At some point, each of us has to make that decision on to turn, devote our lives, and serve the one true living God. Sometimes we call this conversion or heart regeneration, redemption, reconciliation. Prompted by God's Spirit, we decide to put our sinful past behind us, throw all caution to the wind, and then serve Him. It's happened to me. If you're a believer here today, it has happened to you. Every person's personal story is different, unique, and special. Take Hudson Taylor, for instance. He's broadly considered one of the most zealous evangelists and missionaries this side of the Apostle Paul. According to his own autobiography, while a teenager, Hudson was trying to pursue the ways of the world. He wanted to fill his life with what the world had to offer. The inconsistencies that he had observed from a number of Christians had caused him to doubt. And he says of himself he began to accept the ideologies of what he now deems infidels and Bible skeptics. But while his mother was away on holiday, Hudson was at home alone, and he fumbled through his father's library in an attempt to try to pass the time, find something to read that would interest him. And Hudson came across a gospel tract. Then as, as he read it, he came across this phrase, the finished work of Christ. He asked himself, if the whole work is finished and the debt is paid, then what is there left for me to do? At that point, he dropped to his knees, turned from his unbelief, and yielded the rest of his life to Christ. It wasn't until his mother returned from holiday that he found out at the very same time that he had dropped to his knees to receive Christ. She was somewhere near 100 miles away on her knees asking God to intervene in his life and to save him. Upon that pivotal decision, he immediately began preparing for ministry. At 21 years old, he went to China. There he spent the remaining 51 years devoted to Chinese missions. He founded China Inland Mission, which sent over 800 missionaries to China and founded 125 schools. This is a result of a teenager making the choice to turn from their past, embrace Jesus Christ, and to serve the true and living God. That's all a result of a gospel tract, Mother's prayer, God's timing. He is God Almighty. He is El Shaddai. Well, during Old Testament times, 
people face pivotal spiritual decisions as well. Our widows from last week, you remember Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, must decide which direction the rest of their life was going to take them. Would it be towards Judah and the God of Israel, or would they turn back and go to the gods in Moab, the false gods in Moab? Naomi, the grieving mother-in-law, has already set her mind to return to Israel. But because she can't envision any future for Orpah or Ruth there, it's because they're Moabites, and facing what she perceives as a hopeless situation, Naomi urges the girls to return home. That's where we left off last week. In verse 14, it says, And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then Naomi said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Orpah is the leaving widow. She opts to return to that which is familiar to her. She knows what awaits her in Moab. She doesn't have to exercise a lot of faith to go that direction. In contrast, the road to, jo- to Judah held a lot of questions. That would take her to a place that's unfamiliar, uncomfortable, and new. In fact, as we go out to witness to people and tell them about Jesus Christ, you're going to find that one of the greatest barriers to people placing their faith in Christ is they're just really comfortable with what they already know. They're comfortable with whatever religious traditions they've already been taught. They know their current friends. They know the bars and the places that they go to frequent and hang out. They all generously share in the same sins which they enjoy together. They're comfortable with what they know. And apart from God moving in their hearts, a type of habitual sin like that is very difficult to turn from. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Orpah, but the text does say that she returned to her gods. Jewish tradition, which is very critical of Orpah, uh, records that she ended up becoming one of the ancestors of Goliath, believe it or not. I wouldn't put too much weight on that. It is a tradition. But in reality, Orpah is just simply obeying what her mother-in-law told her to do. But in comparison, Ruth clung to Naomi. She clung to her. It's the same Hebrew root word, uh, dabak, that God uses in Genesis chapter 2, commanding a husband to leave his father and his mother and to cling to his wife. Dabak. Did I pronounce that right, Kim Hibbard? Good. Always good when you have language scholars in your midst. That's the type of embrace described here. It's a permanent one. So Ruth holds fast to Naomi with no intention of letting go. And as you can see, Naomi nonetheless still proposes to send Ruth away to Moab. Now, I'll, I'll admit this is a disturbing proposal. Why would Naomi send someone that she is supposed to love back to the false gods of Moab. Really, the best explanation that I can give in this is that in her distress, uh, she's come to the realization that she can't provide for Ruth or Orpah, and that's clouded her judgment. Naomi's not thinking spiritually. In her desperation, all she can think of is, 
the physical and the material. I have no way to, to care for these girls. Then we have to remember that she hadn't had significant contact with the Jews, with Scripture, for over a decade. There hadn't been a lot of discipleship going on down in the land of Moab. So her anxiety contributes to this spiritual ineptitude. She's thinking material and physical. But at the same time, Ruth is now thinking spiritual. Look at verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. This is a stirring example of what it means to turn from your past. Ruth makes a clean break from her idols. Every person alive needs to come to this point, including those who live in the New Testament period, which is us. The Apostle Paul commanded the church in Thessalonica in acknowledging to them that they had turned from idols to God to serve a living and true God. We have to turn away from the idols that control our lives. It may be false religion, self-indulgence or vain pride. Self can certainly be an idol. Some people devoted their lives entirely to the purpose of entertaining themselves. Solomon tried that, and what did he find out? It's nothing but vanity. You and I need to conclude that we cannot bring glory to God by serving ourselves, by serving idols. Short of redirecting our purpose and bringing glory to the true and living God, we're dispensing our life, we're dispensing our time and our resources into vanity. But if you're willing to forsake the past and embrace the fullness of God, which today now for us is made known in the manifestation of Jesus Christ, you'll find that God's provision for a new life in Christ is more than fulfilling. Ruth does this. She forsakes her past. Her mother-in-law is a Jew. Naomi's a member of the New Covenant, Old Testament covenant people of God. And by faith, Ruth makes a magnificent proclamation. In the Hebrew language, Ruth's words are very short and pointed. She quite literally says to Naomi, Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Ruth has sworn allegiance to God and to Israel. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, the Apostle Paul quotes God's promise to Abram, saying, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Then Paul adds, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the, justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Genesis 12.3 So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the believer. By confessing, your people, my people, your God, my God, what has Ruth just done? 
through faith she's become a proselyte Jew. And there's an important side note to this. In order for Ruth to demonstrate this faith, did Naomi have to promise her anything in return? Did Naomi have to make the road to faith easy for Ruth in order for God's grace to become effectual? No. no. We hear this false proposition a lot today. That you have to make it easy for people to believe. Maybe by providing some kind of spiritual carrot. Or in foreign missions you hear people say that first you have to meet them somehow materially before they can speak spirit or think spiritually. You should... Maybe try to perhaps buy them off, give them a little something to wet the whistle, the spiritual whistle. The problem with that proposal is that you don't find that in the Bible. The other thing is you can begin to make salvation an act of man rather than a divine act of God. And that methodology discredits the power of God's word and his gospel What the approach is saying is that you don't believe people are born again by the power of God's word and the declaration of the gospel. But in scripture you don't find the apostles buying votes for Jesus. Instead they pray for an open door and preach the word. On most occasions in the New Testament, like here with Ruth, when people come to faith, what are they facing? Most often they're facing persecution, a troubled road, obstacles, threatening. That's how we know that salvation is a work of God. No one would have done what those people in the New Testament did if it had not been for the power of God for them to have the courage to face death, to face the trouble that they were encountering. That's how we know salvation is real. Scripture indicates as in Lydia's case, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the gospel. It's an act of God. Luke 24, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Then you look at Cornelius. At the preaching of the word of God through Peter, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And they believed. We need to remember that when we're out winning souls. God's in the business of changing hearts. We're not. Instead, we've been given the privilege and responsibility of carrying the message. Some of you might know a preacher named Erwin Lutzer. He is a senior pastor of the Moody Church in Illinois, Chicago area. Moody Bible Institute. He has taught there for years. Erwin Lutzer, he used to teach, I don't know if he still does, but first semester homiletics. That's first semester, semester preaching. In the first week, he would take out the students to a graveyard. And he would set them up and they'd walk out and the students didn't know what was going on. And Erwin Lutzer would ask them to open their Bibles and stand in front of a grave. He'd tell them, now get preaching. If you think you can raise the dead without God involved, that's what you're trying to do when you go out preaching the gospel to people. God has to be involved with the proclamation of the gospel. It's a sovereign ministry of the Holy Spirit, John 16 says, to convict the godly of their sins, make them right for the gospel. It's our privilege to share the message. 
And we pray that God will orchestrate events to place us in the path of those who are under conviction so that they'll receive the good news. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul petitions the church saying, Pray for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word. That's what we're praying for. That God will open up a door for the word. Now Ruth wasn't facing an easy road, but her heart had changed. And that fact is amplified by Ruth's willingness to go under such dire circumstances. Now Naomi, you remember, in our last passage, went to extraordinary lengths to express she had nothing to offer Ruth. She didn't have money. She didn't have any more sons for them to be married to. There was little or no opportunity for a Moabite in the land of Israel to be married and to have a family. So Ruth becomes for us a stunning example of a person who's willing to serve a widow, though she is expecting nothing in return. That's how we serve in the church. We don't love somebody because they have the resources to help you. James chapter 2 says you don't favor someone because they have the money to help you. We don't need to do that. We treat the poor, like Naomi, with dignity, and God will meet our needs. And he'll do it in ways that we couldn't imagine. Well, people in ministry have gotten a horrible reputation for this. Across the country, you'll run into people that are out for money. I have a friend uh, from the mission field, more of an acquaintance than a friend. Anyhow, this acquaintance uh, had lunch with Rita and I at different times, and he wasn't a believer. He had tried going to church. This guy is worth a lot of dough. We're not talking a few hundred thousand dollars. We're talking big, big money. And he's asking me things about the Bible and about church and about Christ. We're trying to invite him to get him back into church to hopefully hear the word. And he said, well, I've attended church. And I've gone to different churches. And uh, him and his wife both attested. It's like we go to the church and it seems like immediately after service, the pastor's coming up to us and wants to take us out to lunch. This guy was very renowned for being wealthy in this region. He was a mogul. Everybody knew who he was and how much money he had. And he said, the thing that bothered me most is I could tell as I'd visit these places that this was only happening to me. I was the only one getting asked out for lunch, and I know why the pastor is asking. We need to be very careful that we not get a bad reputation for that. Now, if Naomi would have had money, might her situation have been different? Oh, she probably would have had relatives coming out of the woodwork. They would have had all kinds of advice for her, but she didn't have that. The prosperity isn't Ruth's motivation. Here we find that Ruth has genuinely accepted Yahweh as her God. And incidentally, does anyone remember the reason that God provided last week in Deuteronomy chapter 7 of why Israelites were not permitted to marry foreign women? Do you remember why? It said, For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. But what do we know now about Ruth's spirituality? She's converted. She's now a proselyte Jew, categorically. So you tell me 
Now, knowing what Genesis says about true descendants of Abraham, those who are of faith, can a devout and godly Israelite man now in a good, clear conscience marry Ruth? Yeah. Yeah, yes he can. And without her even realizing it, as she devotes herself to her mother... By exercising faith in the God of Israel, the doors of opportunity are beginning to creep open for Ruth. In verse 18, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, the women said, Is this Naomi? Bethlehem's a small town, and the city is buzzing concerning the news that Naomi had returned. But after a decade or two, the pain and anguish that she had suffered has taken a toll on the appearance of Naomi. Even to the point that some had to ask, is this really Naomi? Then look at, look at verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me bitter. Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, a husband and two sons, but the Lord has brought me back empty, a childless widow. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Again, Naomi doesn't attribute her situation to mere chance. It wasn't bad luck. Like with Job, she knows that God is ultimately in control of things. Nothing's been happening by happenstance. But even under these worst of circumstances, which Naomi cannot in any way understand or appreciate right now, God is beginning to orchestrate a sweet redemption in the lives of these women. Naomi can't see that right now. She can't understand why. And in combination with the name of God, Yahweh, I am who I am, she now refers to him twice as Shaddai, the all-powerful God. He is God Almighty. She doesn't like her circumstances or what has happened. She even acknowledges in her, in her words that God may have a justifiable reason for allowing this to happen to her. She admits, the Lord has witnessed against me. At least from her side of things, she seems to feel some type of remorse for the direction, the path that her life has taken. She confesses this both to God and to the women. Confesses to God and man. And it appears she's accepted her life's lot. I'm going to be honest. I don't really know why God has you where you are right now. I don't understand your difficult situation, and I don't know when or even if God is going to provide delivery from your situation. But consider for a moment where these women are now. In their deepest despair, in desperation living in poverty, is there hope? Yes. Look what has happened. Their horrible situation has brought them back into the promised land. 
back into for Naomi, to the promised land for Ruth. Suffering has drawn them back in amongst the community of God's people where there is faith, where there is safety, where there is provision. Ruth has also had the spiritual blessing of an Old Testament style, if you want to call it, come to Jesus moment. That's a good thing. And looking at the text, what time of year is it now that God has brought them into Bethlehem and Judah? Yes. In a kind of summary statement of chapter 1, verse 22 says, So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, there are probably a number of you here that have a farming background. When the grain and cereal crops like wheat and corn, soybeans, barley, when they come to ripen, which one of these typically ripens first? Barley. Barley, or sometimes flax, are the first to ripen. And those farmers that that are in the Midwest, if you've been with them and you've run a combine, the first setting that they set their combine to on the machine for harvesting is for barley. That's what is at the beginning of the harvest. So here we're at the very beginning of the harvest in Judah. For all you Bible scholars out there, what celebration involving grain happens at the beginning of the harvest? Feast of First Fruits. First Fruits was a thanksgiving offering to God for His goodness for providing them the harvest of the land. And Leviticus 23 teaches that a Hebrew would bring a sheave, a tied up group of grain, a sheave to the priest. It'd be their first fruits of their harvest showing what God had done. And the priest would take that sheave and he would wave it in front of the people. And it was a way of worshiping God and showing what God had done for them through provision. It was called a wave offering. During this time, there'd be a a period of ceasing from labor. There'd be a time of feasting. But the ritual would not only celebrate the provision of God that was made for the landowner. Leviticus 23 also provides for the needy. It continues in saying, When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. The needy and the foreigner. Anybody fit that description in our story? He says, I am the Lord, your God. On another side note, what other celebration happens at the same time? The month of Nisan. Anybody remember? Passover. Passover commemorates the event when Egypt had the angel of death come. But for every home that was covered in the blood on the doorposts, covered in the blood of the lamb, the perfect unblemished lamb, death, or what Exodus 12 calls a destroyer, for that home would pass by them. This is the atmosphere that Ruth and Naomi are walking into when they come to Bethlehem in Judah. The feasts are the feasts of Passover and first fruits. 
So they observe sacrifices, they witness celebration, there's gladness, there's provision, there's joy among the people, there is worship among the people of God, and Ruth and Naomi's lives are about to change. Believe it or not, Christians today are still celebrating first fruits. There were some false teachers in the city of Corinth that Paul had to address in his day. They were claiming that there was no resurrection from the dead. That you were just dead and that was it. The proposition is not only untrue, that it's completely inconsistent with the Christian faith. So Paul counters to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and says this, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins, then those who have also fallen asleep, meaning died, in Christ, have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after that those who belong to Christ at his coming, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Christ is our first fruits. Now I'm going to ask the men to come forward so we can celebrate the Lord's Supper. Communion is not only a memorial of how God's Son was tortured, how He is executed for the sins that we have committed. It is a celebration of first fruits that Jesus conquered the grave and arose in victory. On that third day, He was the first fruits, first fruits of the victory of the resurrection and eternal life that will accompany all believers. Now, at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, we practice open communion. That means if you've trusted in Christ, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, and you have faith that in him alone there is forgiveness of sins and redemption, we invite you to join with us in partaking in the bread and of the cup. We'll celebrate what we have in common in communion. At the same time, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Scripture warns that you examine yourself for unconfessed sins so that you may not partake in an unworthy manner. In that passage, some in Corinth had been causing strife, division, sectarianism, and withdrawing to exclusive groups. Some had not been sharing their resources with one another in food and the bread. They were keeping it to themselves. Still others were just being a poor example the rest of the flock. This is why we distribute, after we distribute the bread and the cup, we provide a period of reflection for everyone to examine our own hearts, confess our sins, repent before God. 
Nathan, would you pray before distributing the bread? In the night in which he was betrayed, after he'd given thanks, Jesus took the bread, he broke it, said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The purpose of the wave offering was to display to everyone how wonderful God had been in giving the provision of the land, provision of the food, 
Today, when we go out and we tell others about Jesus Christ and the provision that God made through him, in a sense, it's like a wave offering. We're waving him in front of people to show them this is the way to God. Earl, would you pray for the cup? As the cup is passed, would you sing two verses of Just As I Am without one?
In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup. And he said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Lord, we thank you for all that you provided us through Jesus Christ, through his blood, Lord. We know in your word you say that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Lord God, we're so grateful that you offered your only son to sacrifice, to pour out his blood on the cross for us, Lord, in the most unimaginable and horrific way. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming us, for loving us, and bringing us together to worship him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we read the last line of chapter 1, we find out that Ruth had said that I come back into the land empty. Is that so? Who did she have with her? Ruth. Next week, start chapter 2. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you, give you his peace. Amen. Have a wonderful week.